0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hello, Paul. Hey, Rob.
1: How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good, good, good. Hey, I re- before, we, before we get going, can I ask you a very practical question? My my 11-year-old daughter—it's a bit complicated to explain the, the or to give children handles on the Trinity, isn't it? I mean, I because we all have problems.
2: Some people view God; they focus on the monotheism or the singularity. Christianity—it's trinitarianism. It's not really what we traditionally call monotheism, though we tend to rate ourselves that way. yeah. And so what you get in monotheism is this reduction. That's inadequate. In the Trinity, you get this multifaceted, ultimate reality. The characteristics of the three persons, that reality itself is multifaceted. The world is multidimensional. It Mm. should not surprise us. You know, we don't understand the world. One of the most mysterious things for us is the stuff that's all around us. We don't really know what matter is. No. We can't say what matter is scientifically. That's the ultimate scientific quest, is to describe you know, high-energy physics. What they're unfolding is there's an infinite depth to material reality. Hmm. Well, once you say that, it shouldn't surprise us that God is more complicated than the material world. We do have entry into this Trinitarian experience. That's the Romans 8 advantage. Hmm. We're not just talking about an abstraction, but we're talking about Trinitarian experience as enfolding and giving full dimensionality to human experience that becomes a participation. In a sense, the abstraction, yes, it may escape us. We can't formulate it, but that's true of most things. We are created in God's image, and that's what's being described in Romans 8, is our participation in God in Christ through the Spirit, that we can see how each are interacting.
1: So to speak of God as a community, is that helpful or can it, can it lead to more problems than not? Yeah, I
2: think who are we as persons? Well, we are who we are in relationships. Relationship. I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a son. That is constitutive. Those aren't just labels that I carry, no. but in a sense, they're definitive. Who I am is filled then through those relational qualities that we have with other people. I'm a friend and we could go on that we too have a multi-dimensionality to us that has an infinite possibility so that we're not simply defined by genetics or by our bodies or, oh, I was born into this family. That is the seed form of an exponentially growing person. So personhood, Mm -hmm. there is a kind of infinite depth to any personhood. Well, first of all, you know, that if uh, somebody comes in and into the class and they don't say anything, you know, we can describe them physically, but that really doesn't tell us who they are. So we only know who people are when they begin to speak. But then we recognize there is no end to getting to know someone. It's not like you're finished with that task. You know, if that's true of human person's, It should not be surprising that's a characteristic of God. Now, can we apprehend this or understand it or reduce it? No, we can't, but we can use illustrations and recognizing, you know, that the illustrations may be inadequate, but they're pointing us to this larger reality.
1: That's good. Thank you. This is what's been, not troubling me, but it's a growing conviction about the depth of... (laughs) of the problem in this whole area of uh, imagery and God being masculine, feminine. He's beyond gender, but yet the medium is the message. The fact that in Christian tradition, as well as maybe even in biblical sources, we've represented God in ways that have smuggled in representations of power and gender, has been the orthodox view of God. And yet those things carry all kinds of social and political baggage. I guess reading your blog post as well, it's like, oh my goodness, (laughs) we've strayed a long way. Because I was thinking about it this morning, isn't it? We say, oh no, God's beyond gender. And then in the very next breath, we we, we spend the next three hours talking about God as some old powerful king (laughs) who rules with masculine, phallic, authority, power, and how do you say it's beyond gender? And then we spend the next years, millennia, talking about God in such male-centric, phallic-centric ways to the exclusion of the feminine.
2: Yeah. This is not simply our problem. In other words, the way I'm describing this, I think, is the human problem. Mm -hmm. The way we describe the problem, we might describe it in different ways, but this tendency to gender toward the law and toward the masculine. Yeah. I think it is the human tendency. It is the human proclivity that shows itself. That's the the work that you know we did previously with my book with Lacan. He talks about you remember the two orientations, the masculine and the feminine mm-hmm. orientation. Yeah. I think that captures At least in part, the human tendency, the way that we organize our world, that for most of human history, for most people, reality, who they are, who God is, or who the gods are, is defined in and through this legal structure, this law based structure. However, you, and again, the law, you might describe it in different ways. You know, that's Paul's point. Oh, it really doesn't matter in the end whether we're talking about Jews or Gentiles, that there's a universal predicament, there's a universal tendency. That's really what we were doing in the philosophy class in nominalism. What nominalism amounts to is the same tendency to entrust ourselves to the symbolic order, or mm. just to say it in another way, think of the Babylites. They entrusted themselves, they trusted language mm. to in some way deliver God to them, ultimate reality to them. That mm. is their own symbolic order, their own use of language they thought was adequate for the truth. Don't mistake what I'm saying here. None of the problem is with law or language per se it's mm. that we imagine they deliver God to us. Mm. God delivers God to us. He's the one. He doesn't come to us through the medium of law. The law was never meant to bear that weight. Yeah, And of course, that's Paul's whole argument. But just put language there. Language is a symbolic order. You know, this is the Lacanian use of language. At a deep, unconscious level it is a displacement do you know the story about freud's day of babysitting
1: with his uh, his grandson
2: and the little spool you know and the grandson throw he he learns to speak he happens to begin to play with this spool and in german he's saying gone fort yeah. and then he pulls it and he goes ah there it is you know kind of peekaboo it's one of the first yeah. games children learn gone here gone here just that binary. Well, that binary happens to be the basis of language. Mm. You know, Think of computer language. It's ones yeah. and zeros. Yeah. What Freud notices is this child was particularly attached to his mother. Yeah. And she, he was usually real hard to take care of because he had just cried. The day that he began to play with the spool, he stopped crying. And yeah. Freud's point is, well, he was compensated for the mother. You know, the mother, he couldn't control. She came and left, and yeah. he, she had no control over. The spool, yeah. there was great satisfaction in that he controlled it. He threw yeah. it away, it disappeared, but then he could pull the string, and it would appear. I think that's a picture of what language does for us, and that's Lacan's picture that it's a kind of compensation for, you know, in the case of the child, for the mother. Yeah. He doesn't, in a sense, need, you know, this is, sounds cruel. But, of course, later, the boy's father dies. He's mm-hmm. at the in the war. Must have been World War One. Yeah. Yeah. The boy's not upset at all. Back to Genesis. Genesis, I think, is an archetypical. We can appeal to it. What displaces God? in the experience of Adam and Eve is the knowledge of good and evil, good, evil, fort, daw, something, nothing, you know, yeah. it's always this binary. Yeah. And that's, of course, uh, the talking thing that yeah. comes out of the earth. That's the temptation is that yeah. you don't need God because you yourselves now have access to the knowledge of good and evil. Hegel, of course, reads this. He says, yeah, this is great. And I think it is a deep insight. First of all, it gets the binary of language. It gets the duality of language. And of course, at a deep unconscious level, it gets at the compensation of what language can do for us. Yeah. You, know, you know, those of us who may have a slight philosophical bent in some philosophical systems, They really imagine that through manipulating, you know, if I can get the logic right, if I I can get the correct syllogism, that I can arrive at the truth as if I can play this game. See, this is really, I think, the conversion experience of Ludwig Wittgenstein. I think he's about to go insane. You know, he's always on the verge of suicide. Yeah. You know, when he first meets Bertrand Russell, he's always threatening to kill himself. Yeah. You know, he's not a logical positivist, but he's playing a very similar game in which he imagines that all philosophy is just a matter. I I I need to to get the correct syllogism, I need to say things right. It's all a matter of logic. Well, that that is a universe, that's a world that is simply a symbolic nominalist world. You know, the, the language is the reality. But, of course, that's a, a reality that falls short of really bypassing everything and positing yeah. an alternative reality in its place. Sure. That uh-huh. philosophical tendency is the human tendency.
1: Um, yes, no, that, that's helpful, Paul. It seems to me, though, that that situation we're in, the human condition as far as language, how could we have ever avoided it? It seems unavoidable. Like, like we were always going to end up in that place because language works like that. It doesn't seem like there could have there couldn't have been any other way.
2: Let me give you my standard answers, but let me warn you before that your question is better than any answers I have. Okay. <laughs> the question really goes to the heart of a lot of things. Well, first of all, yet yeah, you're correct that. You know, we're language users and the problem, what happens to us, you know, and I don't, I'm not claiming, I understand this myself. When you describe the mirror stage or when you describe a child entering into language, it seems like it's just nearly inevitable that the way that they're oriented to language is already mistaken
1: Mm. because
2: the child says about his image in the mirror, that's me.
1: Mm. Well,
2: no, it's not you.
1: Mm.
2: that's that's an image that's a which sounds at one level silly but of course that's the freudian point and i think that that's paul's point there is this positing of an ego an i that is this kind of static reified object i think that's really what paul is describing the the i you know not in the usual way we hear this the i you know is an idol you know like oh people are narcissistic i I don't mean that But there's a correlation in human identity and idolatry because what identity in idolatry calls for is this kind of reified object that is made an absolute. That is kind of the human condition. The way the Bible presents it is that Adam and the first people, they were socialized in a community in which God walked with them in the cool of the day. Yeah. However, you, believe, whatever you might believe about that, that yeah. God is the model. And then, of course, the next description of the human image is that with Seth, who was born to Adam, that he is in the image of Adam. Well, we know that to be the case. Every child were recognized, you know, every child, they need to be fed, they need to be clothed, but the one thing they need more than anything else is. To be loved, to be recognized, and who does that is their parents. We're all socialized yep. into a kind of failed humanity, yep. Yep. and in that failed humanity, I don't mean to just create a flat space and say, "Oh, everybody's reduced to the same thing." Mm-hmm. I don't think that's true. I think that there are different levels of, you know, yeah, some communities, some people, some places are more depraved than others. Yeah, for sure. I think that's the picture that, yes, there is a sense that we do pass through this thing. We can get stuck there. Sure. That, yeah, so that's kind of an inadequate, okay, yeah. acknowledgement that seems inevitable, and I guess it is.
1: But then that, would the next step then be that in Christ, in the Spirit, through the life God gives us in His that shares with us in the Trinity. Language begins to be redeemed. Is that you can approximate redemption with language? Is that a better, way? Or?
2: Yeah. First of all, I, the the problem is not that language fell. The problem is not with the law. The problem is not with the symbolic order. Mm. The problem is with our orientation to it. Yeah. Sure. We would absolutize the law. Mm. In other words, we would displace God with the law. Mm. We would take the medium as the message. Mm. Mm. So it's not that language needs redemption or the law needs redemption. It's that human beings need reorientation. Yeah. I think that's the depiction that Christ, you know, is depicted pictured as, this, as this Logos, as a word. You can get carried away with that because in one sense, human language is adequate for God. Adequate for God to do what? To reveal himself. Yeah. But there's a difference between God revealing himself And the notion that language reveals God. No, God speaks. He's spoken to us in specific ways, by specific means. And finally and fully, he's spoken to us in Christ. Hmm. And and so language is adequate for the revelation of God in Christ that we have. Now, I think that is an unfolding reality for all of us. Hmm. I, I think my particular view of the church, you probably already captured this, I think we can make progress and we are making progress that, you know, this picture, yeah, there's been these failures not to just write it all off because you can then go back and also see there have been people who have done better than others. But that's true in our own life, you know, that that we can make progress. There's yeah. historical progress and that we ourselves then are growing into this realization, yeah. and that's the scene, you know, in Romans 8, at one level, you know, we don't like to talk this way, but, you know, what's happened is that the Eve conceiving... But you mean Mary, Mary? ...that larger conception of reality, that larger conception. I said, Eve.
1: I, I thought you were making a theological point. <laughs> no,
2: no, I just made a mistake. There is a word from God yes, that otherwise we don't
1: have. Yeah, yeah.
2: So I, I believe in, in the specificity of the work of Christ, we need this revelation. I don't think we have an alternative to it, and no. we need it for two reasons. Failure of humanity, the deception that we've fallen into, this deception that I've just described, the reification of language, which we can re- relate that in many directions, the reification wow. of the law, the, a kind of death denial. You know, psychologically, this is where Lacan and Zizek, they end there. That's all Mm. they got. There is no way out of it. And I think they're correct in their seeing the depth of the problem and the Mm. nature that humanity is oriented in this fashion. But I just happen to believe that we do have a a word from God that undoes this seeming necessity.
1: Yeah, Yeah, that's good. I'm just looking at your blog post here. You conclude by speaking of... The continued struggle with the masculine principle of idolatry characterizes the sub- subsequent Christian age. And then you that's when you then transition to speaking of the women in the early church, you know, how influential they were, how, how significant. And yet, sadly, the gradual subordination of the feminine aspect of God, hand in hand with the denigration of women, the incorporating birthing and pathetic groaning qualities of the spirit written or drawn over by masculine images of God. Is there anything I can do with any of these things for, on uh, any given? Uh, no, no, not on one Sunday, but in my congregation, it's just so deeply, the masculine principle so deeply ingrained. Yeah, you, you know, do you know the Sydney Anglicans were one of the main, yeah, heretics or culprits Behind the the whole idea of linking complementary ideas with the Trinity, you know the whole idea. The, yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 they, they were, I mean, that's how far they're willing to go. They, they were yeah. willing to engage in, in what even the ET uh, Evangelical Theological Society concluded eventually that this is this is heresy, guys. You Yeah. Can, yeah. They were they're that 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 desperate to to hold on to this patriarchal idolatry. It's its unbelievable. And unfortunately, they've got hold of, I think I've told you, the, um, a lot of university ministry in uh, definitely my state, but even more widely in Australia. And so a lot of the staff workers, chaplains in university ministries are trained by Sydney Anglicans. And so m- many of my young people went through those systems. And so when they come back to... Uh, a Baptist church, who's actually more egalitarian, it's a major problem, because they all think, yeah, but 1 Timothy 2, it's all there, blah, blah, blah. Wow,
2: that's tough. Yeah, maybe that that would have been a a fitting, despicable end to my article.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Despicable and tragic. I mean, because I'm in the epicenter of that disaster. It really is. um... It's actually interesting. uh, Sydney, I mean, this is probably more than you want to know about Australia, but Sydney evangelicalism is quite different to the rest of Australian evangelicalism. So a lot of Australian evangelicals are a lot broader and wider. But in Sydney, and there's probably historical reasons there, but you know, Sydney is really um hardcore fundamentalist low Anglican evangelicalism. Uh, and, and out of Sydney comes a lot of money, a lot of money, a lot of resources to infect many other parts of the world with their ideas. And, and they're a big. I don't know if you know much about the Anglican Church worldwide, and how you have this very fundamentalist group of um, Anglicans who are trying to take control of the church. A big part of it comes from Sydney.
2: Wow! Wow!
1: Yeah, yeah. that the money, the people, the the publications come out of Sydney. I think it's called GAFCON. What is it? GAFCON is the General Assembly for Evangelical Anglicans, and something like that. Anyway.
2: You know the seminary I went to Nottingham through was Anglican, and it was a conservative.
1: Oh, really? But th- that, from from where I stand, that's the, they they're the good Anglicans. <laughs> yeah, I
2: I had never never any problem
1: with them. Yeah, you know, no. You know, John,
2: you've met, and he's an Anglican
1: priest. Yeah, no, that that's a yeah, that's a different type of Anglican to a Sydney. I mean, yeah. the, the way John talks, you wouldn't hear Sydney Anglicans talk like that.
2: Actually, the little Bible college where Faith and I were, they were probably the worst in my, our own churches. I didn't, oh. know, I didn't know this when I came here, that there is, you know, in the kind of fundamentalism here, there is a kind of denigration of women, yeah. uh, patriarchal yeah. understanding. You know, the explanation is that the image that we bear, male, females, and the failure of that is there. Yeah. That's one of the early signs. And yeah. I just happen to think it's one of the primary signs. In other words, yeah. human sexuality, human genderedness, yeah. those relations bear the heavy marks of human failure. I mean, yeah. that's just the reality that's all around us
0: yeah. in
2: the worst sorts of crimes. Yeah. But even in ordinary people, I think that that's where our own failings, you know, are going to show up is in the, the male-female because yeah. that's precisely, I think, where we bear are meant to bear the image of God. Yeah. And of course, that our tendency then is toward this kind of dominating, oppressing, or in a or on the other side, a kind of acceptance of a punishing suffering sort of role, both of which, and of course, if they're codependent they're Mm. you know they're mutual well then then it's a a mutually unhealthy relationship that to my mind that just bears all the marks of the fall and has missed the redemption redemption to my mind is a real world throwing off of oppression enslavement and the thinking that makes us slaves
1: Mm -hmm. and and slaveholders yeah this is the crazy thing that if you're a young woman in sydney and you want to uh, be everything you can be, make a difference in the world, invest your life in justice and mercy and leading for change, I would want to keep you away from evangelical churches because they will hurt you. They will harm you. They will keep you down. They will tell you that, really, you should be getting married, having children, or at the very least, if you want to be in ministry, it's just for women only. So in other words, the church actually... Is at a worse place than the wider society. I mean, the wider society has a lot of problems, obviously, (laughs) a lot of addictions and dysfunctions and all kinds of things, but they're actually doing better in this whole thing of denigrating women and keeping them down. And, you know, on the other hand, they, you know, they they, they sexualize them and they do all kinds of terrible things. (laughs) But,
2: um, yeah, yeah. You know, that's the way Paul talks about salvation.
0: Yeah, is yeah. that
2: you shall leave your father and mother and Cleveland, your yeah. wife. But I'm talking about Christ in the church. And this is a great mystery.
0: You know, yeah.
2: uh, that, that's Carl Barth's point about the woman coming out of the side of the man, that here is, yeah. the, here is the mystery of the universe, because yeah. represented there is the reality of Christ in the church, of yeah, of yeah. the fulfillment or the completion of the humanity that will yeah. take place in the wedding feast of the Lamb. Yeah. As human beings, I don't think we have any alternative other than gendered language. That's just yeah. that's just you the way speak. we think.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: You know, and that's sort of Coakley's point. Oh, everybody yeah. says God's beyond gender. We all know that then we gender God.
1: Yeah, that's right.
2: Because that's all we got. That's yeah, that's yeah. how we approach personhood. Yeah. In the veneration of Mary, what seems to be taking place, that is a sign of the degrading or of the you know of the role yes. of the Holy yeah. Spirit. Literally in the iconography, that she
1: displaces yes. the Holy Spirit. Well, that may that's be a right. problem. Since we lost the feminine imagery and the feminine gender language for god we had to find a place to put it in right <laughs> so so we we, we put it onto mary
2: and yeah. that's, not, that's not an adequate rescue
1: no, of no the holy spirit
2: in other words well, it's, not, it's
1: not a rescue it's not a rescue at all it's a this no. displacement with displaced that we we demoted and displaced him. Um, i like how you finish here with iconography iconography how the returning to the masculine principle, and we've lost the birthing and dwelling into penetrating bond of love enacted by the spirit. So I guess I haven't looked through all the pictures, but have you come across any good iconography that does a very, I mean, you mentioned William Blake. I have to check that one out, but apart from William Blake's, have you found much good iconography that begins to avoid that sort of feminine imagery?
2: In the chapter there, she She's got a couple, yeah. She's got a couple. The the one that, you know, the last one is a modern one, that actually there's no anthropomorphism of the Father yeah. and the Spirit. Yeah. That one, and then the one, there was Blake, yeah, that his, it, it is also a kind of sketch. I'm not sure how it was drawn, but.
1: Hans Holbein, Hans Holbein? No. Yeah,
2: his is terrible, yeah. Oh, no, his is,
1: oh, his, is yeah, his, his is the bad one. He's
2: the bad one. He's the one where you know, God has a sword. Yeah, yeah, yeah and he's about to
1: whack oh ah, yeah yeah jesus <laughs> sorry that's a tomorrow. terrible one
2: <laughs> and jesus is crying out you know don't ah, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> and that's Mary, the one not to do that's what yeah. not to do yes uh,
2: what's the woman's name Hildegard of Bingen that's it that's it Hildegard of Bingen and it's a very simple portrayal a uh, golden circle a silver circle or vice versa i can't remember which is which and then the christ figure and, of course, Coakley makes a lot out of the, the Christ figure in his face. And, of course, we can't see it that well, and or at least I'm not seeing it that well, but he seems to bear the fullness of the Trinity. Hildegard gives us a commentary, but does not use the passage, you know, where Paul says that if you say Christ is Lord, you know, this is through the Holy Spirit. Yeah. But that's, that's fitting. And I thought the other that was also fitting, though it didn't necessarily tie into the theme of the Holy Spirit, but was the same thing is that when he says to Philip, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Yes, And so Christ is the Holy Spirit in God, that, that part, what we can see, that we have access to the Holy Spirit in God, yeah. to, to that reality, to that understanding i think there is a, a right and a wrong way yeah. to, to portray and of course what we're talking about when we're portraying that's the way we think you know yeah. how we imagine For who sure. god is and so yeah, yeah i i think those are helpful
1: i think you're right um how important uh, our imagination is hanging a visual culture like today's i mean it's, it's always been visual but especially today with so many images we desperately need Christian, well, we just need good artists to uh, to help us reimagine God, don't we? Visually.
2: Yeah. and I, I think I, I'm all for simple, you know, obviously with Christ, that we can portray his humanity. Mm. But of course, I think it becomes problematic when we reduce the Father and Spirit to anthropomorphized figures. Maybe for some people, that's all they can grasp onto. Well. Yeah, I was about to
1: say, um, I don't know, have we talked about this in the class? You know, the shack. Yeah, yeah. Did you, ever see, did you ever see a picture of the Trinity? Have you seen a photo of the three actors that they use for the Trinity? Octavia, Octavia, Octavia Butler, she's the, 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 the mama, the African mum,
0: yeah, <laughs> mother figure. Yeah.
1: She's God. But then for the Holy Spirit, they have this uh, sort of Eurasian lady. And I agree with you. You can see how that could be not helpful. But I just wonder. So a few years ago, when I first came across the shack, I was in my more Reformed Calvinist sort of you know, biblical. And I thought, oh, how stupid. That's ridiculous. Yeah. But then looking at it as part of doing this course, I thought, look, I know this is obviously just a crude anthropomorphic, but it. I think it's helping me reimagine god a little bit or at least to stop imagining him as an old white <laughs> yeah, god yeah. To i wonder if it could be a step on that on that journey of of having more feminine imagery for god but yeah, yeah, yeah you don't want to stop there
2: yeah no I, I my reaction was actually i was surprised by my own reaction when i picked it up i think i read the book yeah so i thought oh uh, i obviously won't like this and then i got into, no actually i did like it. <laughs> well this but is you per- did- yeah, I oh, did. did. like it, okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I appreciated it. I,
1: I thought that it was helpful. Oh, so you read the book. You haven't seen the movie though? I think I did both. I think I saw both. Yeah, yeah. So in, in the movie, just because there was a picture there that I saw the three of them together. I thought, I mean, obviously it's messing with my mental uh, furniture, but I think in a good way. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. And so I think we can pick up stuff like that. And if it's helpful, use it. And of course, recognizing it is an aid I think there's a lot of imagery we can use that's helpful just probably not get stuck on particular images.
1: Because yeah. I've been thinking about the, the, the people that I minister with and to, the young people, and because they're so stuck with a very male-centric masculine principle, I, I often wonder, I wonder if you've shown them this picture, I wonder what process or what it would do to them. I imagine some of them would react quite <laughs> vehemently and heresy. But I, but I wonder if then I can have a good conversation about well, God's beyond gender, right? And yet we have to use gender language, and then have a good conversation around. Yeah. yeah. That.
2: These are Chinese. Australian-born
1: Chinese, yeah. there
2: Australian-born Chinese evangelicals.
1: Yeah, evangelicals. They're, they're all between because I'm I'm in a Chinese Baptist church, and I'm looking after the English-speaking congregation, which is all the the children and the young people of the older Chinese. And so they're very Chinese, but half of them can't speak Chinese at all.
0: <laughs> so
1: right. I think they call them bananas. They're white on the inside. <laughs> Probably a silly way of saying it, but yeah, there's a bit of truth in that. Um, they think Western and they think you know Australian, but yet they're not your typical white Australian Anglo. So they're, they're quite different. They look very different to them. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they have that Chinese culture, but they're not Chinese. Nothing like their parents or or back home in China. I do uh, worry for the young women, and I try and help them reimagine themselves in light of God's love and their uh, humanity and their them as women as well.
2: I, and I think, in the end, that what this nonsense of complementarianism and all yeah. that, yeah. I'm afraid that what it denies us of is real world experience of yeah. God, of yeah. who God is in other people, and and the full blown beauty of other people, that in some way that other people become, you know, they're reduced in in who they are. So this is funny for me but it's just there in eight that we're talking about entering into the experiential reality of who God is not in some sort of ecstatic thing but I think just in a a recognition that God has intersected with our world mm-hmm. and we continually that that's the reality that we live and move and you know have our meat being in that and to fully appreciate that i I think that's what I've come to mm-hmm. and in reading and, Romans 8. And so as long as we're stuck in this other stuff, it's going to be an obstacle.
1: It is. It is. It, it's funny how people in, in, some people in my church who think a bit, they, they say things like, because I think they can sense what you just said, uh, Paul, they can sense that, that it's not helping them live in the real world. So they say, why is church, why does it feel so unreal? Like it's not reality. When I hear that, it's like, see, they know it. They just don't have the language or maybe the frameworks for making sense of what's going on. But at least in my church, and I've heard people talk like this about their churches, yeah, there's, there's a, a lack of reality because it's like, what, what are we talking about again?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: I was actually
2: listening to a class that we did in the philosophy class last, and we were talking about nominalism. And I thought yeah. it was a great conversation because there's a sense in which we live in an age the the universe is disenchanted Mm. reality is kind of flattened out for us it's kind Mm. of emptied it's bland there is a struggle that i don't think people had previously that we almost have to practice a discipline in our own lives to experience the reality of the presence of god We, we really have to practice that I'm imagining that we live in an age in which that's become more difficult. And I mean, even for believers, uh, our world has become, I mean, secularity is just a description of the church. Yeah. (laughs) The church is infected by this thing.
1: Church growth models. and All,
2: All of that. That's what we're combating. What we're describing is Romans 7 has won out culturally. Yeah. To my mind, that is, there's nothing different from nominalism or secularism or, yeah, you know, the kind of empty world than what Paul is describing. He's just describing a complete emptiness.
1: It's barren. It's barren, isn't
2: it? Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's, it's because I have to preach a wedding sermon in a couple of weeks. I've got eight minutes, maybe nine. And uh, I know there's going to be quite a few people who have never set foot in a church and have very preconceived secular ideas about God. and I'm thinking long and hard about, yeah, how do I, in some small way, help them reimagine who they imagine themselves to be, who they imagine God to be, what they imagine life's about, and what they think love is really. In very fragmentary, sort of uh, partial ways, I'm trying to (laughs) re-enchant or to offer some signposts that maybe they're missing out on 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 a, on a deeper life, a fuller life, a life of love. And so, with this wedding, which is between two Christians, it's from they've given me Revelation chapter twenty-one. I saw a new heaven, a new earth. God's dwelling is with humanity, with humans. He will be their God. There'll be no more tears, no more pain, no more grief. So, and I've, I have to do it all in eight minutes. Wow! <laughs> so, <laughs> but it, I've enjoyed the process. I've enjoyed the process to think what. You know, this could be, I'm not Jesus, I'm not the Messiah, I'm not going to save anybody, but I've been given this opportunity. So what could I say that might help people who never otherwise would have, would hear of a God who loves them, of a God who is love and has created them in love for love and they're destined for a life of love. And then to, you know, to talk a little bit about that well to come and then how weddings and marriages, when they're, working well when people are faithful and loving they become little signs and and posts and 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 glimpses of that of that world to come so oh
2: that sounds good
1: (laughs) A lot to think about not just today's class but the last few weeks um i'm trying not to get too reflective on my present condition as far as ministry context and how deeply the people I, I ministered to are uh, captive to this this masculine principle in this
2: uh, oh believe me you' you're not alone that this is what I yeah, hear yeah. from anybody in ministry they're they're suffering with uh, are people really listening to me <laughs>
1: you know well I guess it's like um, you know people have been trained and taught they're being indoctrinated right? And so oh. they think how do you help someone who's been indoctrinated and who's afraid of new ideas, afraid of deviations from the truth, um, which is what I what I find with the people I'm ministering to. And, yeah. and I think sometimes I watch them listening to me and they're and and they're looking like sometimes they wish that I'm, what I'm saying about God was true, but they can't they can't, <laughs> it's they good, can't trust good. themselves.
2: Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I, I get that look in their eyes and expression because they haven't often heard what i'm saying to them about you know jesus as the father and uh, you know they're just very biblical christians which basically means the bible is a flat book every verse has equal value and so you end up really with a very masculine warrior-like judgmental wrathful god and then jesus jumps in the way and cops (laughs) cops the punishment i mean it's kind of it's funny but it's sad and so i guess i'm you know i'm going the other way and um but yeah, it gives me hope that I can, I think the human heart longs for, you know, what you, what you talk about, Paul, you know, that yeah. we, I think we all, we, we long for that because that's the truth. Yeah. So I guess sure. that's the hope we have that if God can use us to point people to what is in actual fact, the reality of who God is.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: What was your reaction
2: to my critique of Sarah Coakley?
1: They say theology is biographies. So a lot of my theology is deeply influenced by the things I've gone through. You know, my wife had cancer a few years ago. I don't know if I think I mentioned that.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: And, and that wasn't the only experience we had. Infertility, things like that. And I guess I've struggled with suffering, and what Christians say suffering is good for and why yeah. it's come to your life and. Yeah, I, I just found so many people been so confused and they say so many really unhelpful things about the value of suffering, where it's come from, why it's come to you. I was talking to my um, barber, who's a Catholic, and he loves uh, St. John of the Cross and the Dark Knight of the Soul. And he says to me, I mean, I'm not an expert in, in St. John of the Cross. I need a he's He said, oh, no. the 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 dark night of the soul and all those experiences then they're not meant to be normative for christians so in Mm -hmm. his understanding yeah they're meant to be for fellow monks i thought you were suggesting that yeah you can you can take those experiences and make them somehow intrinsic to christ and to christian life and
2: yeah and, and of course if we get the suffering wrong then i'm afraid our tendency will be oh why do you suffer Then we're back to the kind of the punishing male, you know. And so I think it is there that we need to get rid of both things simultaneously of this kind of what I'm calling a a male, you know, idolatrous principle, the phallic principle, and the suffering that that accompanies that. Yeah. Uh, I think that's deadly suffering.
1: Do you think, Kirkley, so she is she saying that she thinks suffering is what eventually overcomes the ego is that what she's getting at that it's true that's
2: what that's what she was saying and that's what i suddenly realized oh well she's missed it yeah yeah, yeah. because the ego is not a reality that we overcome yeah yeah that's,
0: right.
2: <laughs> and no, so that's I, right i think it is you know to imagine this is the thing you can attack in that way is to lend it too much reality yeah, yeah. and of course from a lacanian point of view. Oh, yeah. that's precisely what the ego does. It creates this negative <laughs> e- energy. Yes. It is anxiety. It is this yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, It is this negative force that we circulate within our own, you know, that it is a negative dynamic within us. And so what she was saying would overcome the ego, I think, in a Lacanian understanding, yeah, yeah. and I think in a Pauline understanding, yeah. Yeah. no, that is the ego. still
1: trapped in there (laughs) that
2: is the trap in other words the way that a way of describing the death instinct the death instinct is the drive to get rid of the death instinct yeah what is the ego the ego is the drive to get rid of the ego or the drive you know you can't it's not that's not the game yeah
1: yeah look that that makes perfect sense to me as well just again experientially because i know when i'm particularly you know i get down on myself i get I say, you know, Rob, you're such a loser. <laughs> if, you know, you keep doing the same things. That's still the ego. It's still the yeah. ego. Yeah. Like it you know, it it's still I go from I'm the greatest person in the world to I'm the biggest loser in the world. It's still the ego. Yeah,
2: yeah. And so though that is redemption that yeah. uh is that we're delivered from that attachment yeah. to that false reality. And that, that you yeah. only I think the only way to do it is in the way that paul describes i've been crucified with christ it's no longer i that live the i that gets crucified that didn't hurt no no but nothing <laughs> ha- you know it's not like you're really killing yourself off yeah. no you're you're getting rid of a false identity
1: identity yes yeah. would another way of talking about what happens when we are incorporated into the life of the trinity which is the life of God, which is the life of love and joy and beauty and hope, that a greater reality has got hold of us—a greater yeah, yeah. love—and so we don't have to spend our life trying to beat ourselves down anymore. Right? Because yeah. right—that's that, that's yeah. it.
2: You just play. You just checked out of the other game completely. Yeah. You don't
1: need it, to it's play It's a that boring game. game. It's a it's a sad, boring game. Right? Well, yeah. Why would I want to keep playing that when? I get to, if I can use this language, play with the Trinity, with the life of the world, with that. Yeah. I mean, when when I hear that, you know, when just hearing you talk, and I mean that that would preach. I mean that what an incredibly powerful, beautiful, life-giving message. If only we could we could get at that a bit more. Um, yeah. Yeah. So now we we gotta get to your blog post out there, uh, Paul. The the wonderful content great, but. Not not many of my young people are gonna read <laughs> this much. You, 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 I don't know if you've seen um there's a new YouTube channel that Dan put me onto it. It's called Love Unrelenting. Love Unrelenting. It's uh-huh. like yeah, so somebody started this and, and they're just taking like two-minute clips of uh dividently hard interviews or um Brad Jersak and other people. And I thought this is what we need to do with you with you and your content, Paul. I need and we need to put it out there in little bite size that invite people to say oh this is really good Where can i get the other 28 minutes of it (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah that's what we have to do Um, i
2: I may need a translator or something
1: yeah (laughs) i know i I think all of it's quite good it's just that uh you know you have to think about it and maybe after two or three minutes you know most modern brains just (laughs) they check out yeah
2: it's
1: good that's very good thank you paul that was very um Okay. God bless you, brother. We'll see you next week. All
2: right. See you uh, Tuesday then. Okay, same Tuesday. Good conversation. Yeah.
0: Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative, biblical, and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.